Welcome to the greatest movie of all time. Tonight we bring you number 39, Jaws. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, if you haven't been listening to the Dynasty Download, you're missing out. We're covering everything you need to know for your weekly fantasy football lineups, especially if you play Dynasty League football like we do. There are two episodes every week, so there's more than enough content to get you and your lineup ready each week. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss Jaws? Yes, I am. That's all you need to really know. I, I'm sure it's yes. going to come up, but literally you only have to do that, and everybody immediately knows exactly what it is. That will definitely come up in my review, let's say. So, quickly, let's move over to plot summary. When a wo- young woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping near the New England tourist town of Amity Island, police chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, wants to close the beaches, but Mayor Larry Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton, overrules him, fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. I'm going to have a terrible time with this word, but ichthyologist Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, and grizzled ship captain Quint, played by Robert Shaw, offer to help Brody capture the killer beast, and the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature. This uh, film was nominated for Best Picture, one for Best Film Editing, Original Score, and Best Sound. It was number 48 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movies list from 1998. It dropped to number 56 on the 10-year anniversary list in 2007. AFI also ranked The Shark at number 18 on its list of 50 Best Villains. Roy Scheider's line, You're Going to Need a Bigger Boat, is number 35 on a list of the top 100 movie quotes. Williams' score at 6th on a list of 100 years of film scores, and the film is second on a list of 100 most thrilling films behind only Psycho. In 2001, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry as, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, end quote. In 2003, the New York Times included the film on its list of best 1,000 movies ever made, the following year, Jaws placed at the top of Bravo's network or network's five-hour miniseries, The Scariest 100 Movie Moments. The Chicago Films Critics in, Film Critics Association named it the sixth scariest film ever made in 2006. In 2008, Jaws was ranked the fifth greatest film in history by Empire Magazine, which also placed Quint at number 50 on its list of 100 greatest movie characters of all time. The film has been cited in many other lists of 50 and 100 greatest films, including ones compiled by Leonard Maltin, Entertainment Weekly, Film 4, Rolling Stone, Total Film, TV Guide, and Vanity Fair. So what is your relationship to this movie, Dad? Well, first of all, the movie itself came out when I was rather young. I would have been a fourth or fifth grader. So, you know, I would have been seeing it later on, like when it was on, I believe, HBO. But the interesting thing was, is the best-selling book by Peter Benchley, um, My Babysitter, for that summer of 70, I want to say 74, was reading it. And so I asked her what it was and what it was about. So she started reading it. So she read the book to me when I was uh, 9, 10 years old. And so I knew the story beforehand. 
Which is interesting given how much of the book is basically scrapped for the movie. Uh, I think in my research I saw that Spielberg once said that uh, there's about 27 scenes by his count that were not a part of the book that are part of the movie. And there are huge subplots that uh, are completely scrapped uh, in order to make this much more entertaining. Basically, Spielberg wanted to use the last third of the movie where uh, they're out at sea as uh, closer to the book, but that he wanted to almost completely rewrite the first half of the movie. So... Peter Benchley wrote the screenplay, or at least in part, and so there were liberties taken, but was with his consent. I certainly don't have a personal um, affiliation with this movie in any way. This was a movie that I watched maybe a few years ago. This is only the second time I've seen it, and I think that's been the case with a lot of the movies we've done uh, so far, that it's usually my second or third viewing. But it was on a list of important movies that I needed to get through, and it was a project i'd been personally working on for quite a while so this was clearly one of those and i mean you could tell it by its recognition list uh how important just about everybody universally thinks that it is uh we'll kind of go through that when we get to the categories and the rankings and such but uh it's it's quite clear and evident that or where everybody places this movie and its importance in film history so what is this movie about it is about overcoming odds it is about economics versus um i mean take out the word shark and just put covid19 in and you've got uh the same movie i i don't think that's necessarily an original take i've seen the memes being passed around a lot and that's why when i was watching the film over the weekend i was texting you about that that there are so many similarities but i i think i if I were to glean one particular thing out of this movie, it's an adventure movie first. And I think the notion that it's a very simple concept, um, high-energy adventure movie, uh, particularly given what we got afterward um, from Spielberg and several others, because I, I would say that he makes several of these um, very simple concept adventure-type movies. Um, <laughs> Close Encounters, to a certain extent, is, but it's a little bit more sci-fi. Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., um, Jurassic Park are all kind of in that narrative where you don't need a lot of backstory or a lot of background to understand kind of what's going on, and it's going to be somewhat of an epic adventure type of situation. But uh, if there were to be a universal trope that I take out of it, it's primarily the first half of the movie, like you did yourself, but it's a movie that teaches the importance of not taking certain situations seriously enough. And I think that we have such a cavalier attitude sometimes um, that we don't want to be petrified. I know you've used the term, um, although you use it more in a, uh, in a different manner, but paralysis by analysis. And normally I think that's what people are more afraid of, that they're not going to be able to act quickly enough in certain situations. But I also think that there's a balance between the two, that sometimes this cavalier attitude that we have because we don't want to be frozen in a situation uh, by taking things too cautiously doesn't give us enough caution in the times that we actually need it. And so we really haven't found a good balance between the two attitudes sometimes where um, we need to be cautious and take things um, with a certain level of trepidation, but we also need to be assertive in making um, very astute actions when need to be. There are four parts of this, ultimately. Number one, Quint. 
because of his experience on the Indianapolis, <clears throat> this was a very personal experience to him. That's why he destroyed the radio. He was going to be the one that was going to kill this shark. And ultimately, his revenge mentality was his own demise. Um, Brody is all about redemption from being accused of the boy's by the boy's mother of uh, being responsible for his death. He's going to avenge this. Hooper is just interested in the fish as a scientific experiment. And ultimately, the shark is the fourth part, which is it's just bent on its survival, and it's going to do what's necessary to survive. That's an extremely astute take. Uh, I hadn't really given it that level of perspective. So uh, especially when you tie in Quinn and his uh, experience on the Indianapolis is going to come up later on. But uh, it's certainly something that the first time I watched it, I did. I remembered something about it, but it didn't stick with me nearly as much as it did this time where I actually really paid attention to that scene because it moves very slowly in that early portion. But it's such a pivotal portion of what this movie is about and so much of their character buildup. And I, I really hadn't considered tying that into why he smashes the radio. So that that's a good point. Uh, all right, let's move to best performance. Who do you have down as your best performer? Uh, Robert Shaw. I just think Robert Shaw, every time I've seen anything Robert Shaw is in, he just has a, a presence whether it's stuff that's completely unrelated, like A Man for All Seasons or uh, the James Bond film or uh, The Sting, he just has a presence. And he was an extremely good actor, very gifted. He was a Shakespearean actor in the Royal Shakespeare Company for a number of years. He did movies because they paid better. And so he was trying to build up finances and... uh, well, really, he was he was being hounded for back taxes and was near uh, being a, uh, convicted and sentenced to prison for tax evasion on numerous occasions. So he did films, but his real passion and love was plays. He also wrote and had a, a very highly acclaimed play that he wrote. So he just has a presence that um, that just comes off. Uh, incredibly uh, strong whenever he's on screen. I do find it interesting that, uh, I don't know if you came across this in your research, but he was very close to not doing this film. Um, They had offered the part to quite a few other people, um, some very notable ones. I'm sure anybody can kind of look that up on the internet. This is all. Lee Marvin and um, Sterling Hayden among them. Yes. But they didn't have the roles of Quint or Hooper cast until about a week ahead of time uh, of shooting. And part of the um, intuition of this was uh, that uh, he listened to his um, wife and secretary, that's who it was, uh, about taking this movie because they were the only other time they had been nearly as insistent in him doing the movie was uh, when he played, um, oh, I'm trying to draw, I'm drawing on memory, but uh, when he was in the James Bond movie from Russia with Love, which we may or may not cover at some point during the course of this uh, series. So he figured that he had listened to them before, and that obviously hit that he would likely be able to hit on this movie as well. 
And part of the reason that he really didn't want to take the movie, and I think it was a problem for a lot of the actors in being a part of this movie, uh, I know that Richard Dreyfuss originally said no as well, was they really didn't like the novel. I, I find it very fascinating that even though it was based on it, most of the people surrounding it really did not care for the novel, despite it being a bestseller. My best performer was Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg had made one other non-TV show yeah. TV movie up to this point. And this was the movie that really launched him. And given how much he basically got away with in order to make this movie, it's an absolute astonishment that this was ever made. By far, uh, the cast and the crew, uh, he has a tradition now on every movie that he does, apparently, where he is not present on set for the last scene of any uh, movie that he shoots. Because for this movie, he did not show up to the end. He thought that the crew would toss him into the ocean. And so it's now become this tradition that he does not show up to the final scene shooting of any of his movies as a result. Because the crew had nicknamed this movie Flaws. And as a result, uh, he was 100 days over um, schedule for shooting. He was well over budget. I mean, the amount of things that he had to get away with in order to make this movie and the things that he insisted upon, I really don't think the movie would have worked as well had it been shot in a tank or not down out on the ocean like he insisted on doing. But it took so much out of him to try and redo this, and some of that is inexperience, it's youth. Even he has credited that in later uh, interviews that he has made. And sometimes all of those things have to come together in order for the happy accidents that are movie making. Similarly, he tried to use all these animatronic sharks that kept breaking down during the course of filming, which he credits with turning him from a cheap horror film director into being Hitchcockian, that he made the movie much more suspenseful, that you would only see a dorsal fin every so often, and so you you imagined more in your mind, or that the, the score associated with the shark and the impending doom that may happen made everything much more horrifying and scary. And so he credits the almost accidental nature of this film with making it that much better. But these are all the things that are mistakes that just genuinely worked out, not intentions, but are simply happy accidents. And they're all over this movie. So that being said, you would think that I'm arguing against him being the best performer. But ultimately, if he's not there, if he's not one of the I would say he's minimally in the top five and probably top three of greatest directors of all time. I really don't know if this movie works. All of his choices, while ending up being problems, ended up creating all of these happy accidents that make this film exactly what it is. And for all the things that he put together, all the random casting choices that he made, all the story choices that he made. I mean, the fact that it was out at sea additionally added to the fact that they were finishing uh, rewrites of the script day of. And so sometimes it didn't even allow for them to finish the rewrite had it not been that they had bad weather out at sea. So, I mean, these these all these things coming together – just to make this movie. I, I, I find it exceptional that this was ever made. And uh, it's an incredible 
compliment to him somehow that it was. Well, one of the things that caused the delay in filming was is that because uh, Robert Shaw had such problems with the IRS here and with the Revenue Department in, or the Exchequer in uh, Britain, um, he if he stayed more than five days in the United States at one time, he could be deported. So they would have to they would have him there five days. They would put him on a chartered flight and fly him to Montreal. And he'd stay for a couple of days, then fly back. Well, in addition, he had uh, severe bouts of binge drinking that uh, caused their own problems, to put it nicely. Well, he binge drinking tried constant drinking. They basically said that he would go through a fifth of whiskey in between takes as they uh, filmed every day. Uh, let's move quickly to best secondary performer. Honestly, if I could put it as co-best performance, I really would. I thought for a long time I was going to put him as the best performer, but for me it has to be John Williams. I don't think that the score overall was necessarily the best, because you start listening to individual parts of, of different things. There are some different choices that really change the tone of the movie, and I think Spielberg wanted it that way. There are some sequences where there's some really soaring um, like high seas, um, pirate-esque music that they like to do, like you would hear in Mutiny on the Bounty type of situation, that I think took me out of the film a little bit, although I understand the choice of why they made it, and it really it doesn't detract too much. But is there really, and I, we led the show off with it, but is there any more recognizable movie bar or uh, sequence of notes than those two? The alternate between E and F, or, if you will, F and F sharp. No, I, I, I understand. And the interesting thing was, is when uh, Spielberg first had him play the, the thing, or the, the score to him, he chuckled and said, no, what do you really got? Yeah. Well, so. because he played it on a different instrument. Uh, they wondered, because of the higher register of the uh, notes why they didn't have something like a French horn play it. And Williams thought it was much more menacing. But you think of all of the things that we associate with John Williams over the years. Uh, Indiana Jones, Superman, Star Wars, and I'm, I'm sure that Jurassic Park. All of those scores, all of that brilliance, the things that we've associated with the movies that we most remember are made because he decided to make these two notes. You you wonder sometimes the brilliance of somebody being able to so uh, exquisitely tie a subject and a feeling together that somehow he recognized the impending suspense. I mean, we already talked about how accidental Spielberg's suspense uh, parts of this film were, but that... The way Williams describes it as being kind of a rhythmic heartbeat is accurate. That it's it, it honestly those two notes would be great if everybody or anybody did a very short story of the Telltale Heart. It would fit overlapping that so accurately. And yet, I, I don't care whether you go to a football game if you're getting it in some other pop culture reference. Literally, you play those two notes. 
anybody can tell you what what this film is, what it's from, uh, what it's about, what it means, and how it makes them feel because it's the same. And I really don't know if there's another piece of music other than maybe the the first couple of bars of Star Wars when the screen crawl comes on for certain um, fanboys that gives anybody that same logical tie-in. It, it's just the the perfect marriage. I, I really don't know much what else to describe it as. That was my secondary performer. I had the same thing because the soundtrack really was huge in this film. I mean, you didn't need to know. You didn't need to even see the film. If you heard the music, you knew the shark's coming. Well, I know there are film scores that you hear them and you associate them immediately with a certain movie. Um, Psycho is is one where you get the the eerie um, knife-stabbing sound, and I'm not going to try and make it because it'll sound terrible on the audio, but everybody knows exactly what I mean. But there aren't many of those pre-existing John Williams really doing that with um, Indiana Jones and Superman and some of the most classic uh, film scores that we've ever heard or uh, certain theme music. Now, that seems to be tied in all over the place anymore. Like, you can play certain Batman themes or the Avengers or other different action movies with their scoring, and they're they're very tied to it. But I think Williams took it to another level when he started it with this movie. I agree with you. I mean, this really launched his career. And we're all the better for it. Uh, it's unfortunate to see him kind of retire at this point. Anyway, um, let's move into most charismatic. Uh, I had down Robert Shaw. I would agree with a lot of the points you made for best performer, but I put him more in this particular category because anytime he's on screen, he's the most engaging character. Uh, he seems like the guy that is the harshest, but you're most endeared to his character, and I think it really sells in that scene where he explains the Indianapolis, and you you get all of that extra backstory. But you think about even how he's introduced with the nails on the chalkboard and the town hall meeting and all of his um, proclivities or his eccentricities that he imbues in this particular character as the old sea captain type of uh, thing that you almost – he almost overplays it in parts where you think he could have come straight out of like a Scooby-Doo episode, but then, but then he like reins it just back enough so that it's not overwrought. And I, I just think there for, I think you lose certain aspects of Richard Dreyfus and Roy Scheider in this movie. And they could have been, probably generously played by a bunch of other people. I agree with Spielberg's concept and how he cast the movie, that he didn't want huge stars tied to the movie because they would overpower uh, the narrative, and he wanted the shark to be the real star, which it, it really is. But for what it's worth, out of those particularly three characters, I think, and especially the second half of the movie, where I think this is a movie of two halves, really, and that's why it ends up being as good as it is, because some concepts die after a while, and the fact that they had these these two halves uh, of the whole, uh, I really think he carried the second half of the movie. Well, and I, I agree with you. I mean, 
he he just had this knack. And I mean, you think about it. The original scene introducing him into the film was supposed to be him in a movie theater. They search him out. They find him in a movie theater watching Moby Dick. And the reason the scene was cut and they had to do a different scene to insert him was because Gregory Peck owned the film rights to Moby Dick from when he played Captain Ahab. And he refused to allow uh, the studio to show a clip of it uh, to be put into the theater. So they just cut it out and refilmed it. So let's move. Well, let me guess. um, You also had Robert Shaw as your most charismatic? Yes. I figured as much. I just wanted to clarify. Uh, Best scene. Do you want to nominate one first, or do you allow me to go? Go ahead. So in order to do this one, I I think it only serves justice to read the entire monologue, and I will try my best. But my first nominee is the scene with the Indianapolis. You were on the Indianapolis? What happened? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, chief. We was coming back from the island of Tinian to Leyte. Just delivered the bomb. The Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about a half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer. You know how you know when you're in the water, chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail fin. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it was kind of like old squares in the battle, like you see in the calendar named the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man. That man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming, and he sometimes the shark will go away, but sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. And you know, the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white. And then, ah, then you hear the terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I know how many men. They average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland, baseball player, Boatswain's mate. I thought he was asleep. I reached over to wake him up. He bobbed up, down in the water, just like a kind of top, upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half from below the waist. Noon, the fifth day, Mr. Hooper. A Lockheed Ventura saw us. 
He swung in low and he saw us. He was a young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper. Anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, 1,100 men went into the water, 316 men come out, and the sharks took the rest. June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Yeah. How to do? Decent. Very well. Good. Um, when the first take was done, Shaw saw that he was supposed to be drunk. So, of course, Shaw got drunk. <laughs> yeah, of course. Being and thought he was going to handle the, do the part that way. It was a, just an absolute joke. And Spielberg was just like, oh, you know. And they caught, they wrapped. And about 2 a.m., Spielberg gets woke up by a call, and it's Shaw. And he's like, I'm really embarrassed. I, 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 I really... I'm gonna not drink tomorrow, and then I'm gonna. Uh, we'll do it. We'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Do it perfectly. So he came in. They shot it. It was one take. Not any editing. Not any th- any part. One take. First time. He nailed it. For how the scene starts, and it just takes that emotional turn. And I think it was a very great use of how to do the scene that they set it up where uh these guys are getting drunk and they're just kind of swapping stories and it seems jovial and um like there's nothing serious and then you just hit that one spot and and it just turns on an absolute dime that the the scene changes and you have this close-up and this seriousness and just explaining all of the things that go with it and it adds this extra layer of the suspense of what they're trying to accomplish and i i just found it so mesmerizing so do you have a first nominee um the hospital the scene where the uh the kid or the the younger man had had his leg bitten off in the uh, pond area and uh, uh, the mayor's like in shock uh, uh, Brody's like sign this voucher sign this voucher that kind of was a turning point to me in the movie because it went that was like the transition from getting to the point where we have to do something to now we're going to do something do you have another nominee um yes um um brady kills the beast you mean brody or excuse me brody i misspoke yes brody kills the beast yep can i expand that a little bit so i also had this as a nominee but i'd like to extend because i think from about the point where um dreyfus enters the shark cage uh up and through the final um explosion more or less and the film kind of tapers down after that a little bit but uh, I, I want to treat as like one long piece. So what for you stood out about that scene? Well, I, you know, you're, you're, you're on your edge. You want to see uh, Brody get the shark 
you're also, you know, thinking at this point in time, the chances of him succeeding are pretty low. And, uh, you know, you want to and you want to believe, but you're also thinking, well, they may just pull something here and, you know, off him too, and the shark wins. So there was a certain amount of drama, um, suspense, so to speak, that was there uh, trying to get it set up. But you think back on it, they had done so many, you know, little, um, you know, hidden bones setting that scene up, you know, about the tanks, you know, they could explode, um, you know, and all the different stuff and what a shark would eat and wouldn't eat. And, you know, if you go back through and you know that that scene's there and then watch it again, you see all the little the four uh, shadows throughout the film of what's oh, yeah. going to ultimately happen. Yeah, when they first talk about the tanks and Dreyfus yells at him that they're compressed air, and I'm like, okay, yeah, you can see kind of where the film's going once you know how it ends, and so there's a little bit of uh, foreshadowing that you get, uh, I think is a good use of storytelling, that they don't really waste too much of that. But I, I think there are so many elements to that final sequence. So they're basically at the point of exasperation. I think at that point, is it three or is it four barrels? I think it's three uh, that they basically have tied to the shark. And originally in the book, the shark succumbs to its injuries. But Spielberg wanted a much more thrilling conclusion that seemed to um, give it this finality. I know it's a bit underdone because they disproved that the compressed air tank would explode uh, with the impact of a bullet on Mythbusters, but uh, <laughs> let's just treat it as its own movie moment because it's still incredibly famous. But first off, in and again, this is my research level and whatever else. I really tried to do a little bit more deep diving on, on this one. Uh, apparently they had real uh, shark sequences that were filmed in Southern Australia. And during one of the sequences, they had somebody uh, attack the shark cage or not somebody, but uh, had a, a great white shark actually attack the shark cage. And so that scene where the shark is really like ripping apart the cage and kind of like pulling off the entire cage from the boat and all of that, that was written into the redeveloped part of the script because originally Dreyfus and Hooper are supposed to die. But because there was nobody in the cage at the time that they caught this footage, they needed Dreyfus to get out of the cage and escape and so it actually saves his character. But from the veracity of the shark tearing apart that cage, and that was actually real footage, so that's not even something staged or animatronic, to then the shark getting up on the boat and ending up swallowing um, Quint basically whole, which he foreshadows at one point, you know, the shark, he'll swallow you whole. And that, that's its own thing, and it, it ultimately comes back around to um, end up getting, being his demise. But then you get into the, the final sequence, and how many, I think it's like four or five shots that um, uh, Brody has to shoot. And you're like, he's not going to hit this thing. Why is it? And all of a sudden, he then delivers that line, smile, you son of a bitch. And, you know, that becomes its climactic finish. The shark is no more. And somehow firing a rifle from the crow's nest of a sinking boat is our final sequence. But it works so 
well and it's extremely satisfying and thrilling and it just works you have another scene i'm gonna go with the fourth of july so i think this is really the i i understand where you went with the hospital scene and there there's a little bit to that going on but i think the dividing line really is that fourth of july sequence Everybody's on the beach. The mayor's trying to tell people to get into the water. Uh, you And I think this is a one of the more brilliant master-making scenes in the movie for me, uh, for as much as Spielberg did, because I really watched it with my own movie-maker-type eye. The diversion he creates throughout this scene, because you're really set up to think the shark has attacked everybody at the beach so far to this point in the movie. He's done it in kind of open water, and there's really nothing going to go on. And it's you never get that personal sense where it's attached to one of the characters. And all of a sudden, Brody sends out his son and his friends into the pond, and they create this diversion that you really don't see coming unless you've seen the film before until it happens. And the shark goes into the pond, and it doesn't end up killing his son, but he he does get the one guy and tears off of off his leg, which you then see float to the bottom of the pond. But for all of the diversionary tactics and the suspense that goes into that entire moment, because even up to that point, you get a fake shark sighting with one of the kids playing a prank. And that's like, oh, oh, we finally seen the shark and everybody's going to be safe and we're, we're all good. And then to completely 180 that and all of a sudden the shark is coming after the kids. It's just such a brilliant stroke of plotting, of setting, and of movie making that I I just have to applaud the whole sequence. Do you have any others? Uh, We need a bigger boat. Yeah, I think that – so I have that as chasing the shark, although that could be a much longer sequence, but – for all of the things that happened during that sequence, I think that is the most notable, probably uh, scariest moment, is you don't see it coming until it does, and the shark just kind of pops out of the water, and he's like right there at you, because you really haven't seen his face up to that point, and that's what's the uh, horrifying notion, that all of a sudden it's just like right there in your face, and you weren't expecting it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, The only other one that I had down was, I'm going to call it, uh, you've already kind of alluded to it, but uh, you knew and my son is dead. And I think I have the quote down here. Yes. So Mrs. Kintner, uh, who is actually um, somebody who was from Martha's Vineyard. Uh, It wasn't a real actress. She was just a um, random bystander that they were using as an extra, and she somehow got cast into the film. So uh, Mrs. Kintner, Chief Brody. Yes. Mrs. Kintner slaps him, starts crying. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. You knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now, and there's nothing you could do about it. My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. Leaves with her father. I'm sorry, Martin, she's wrong. Chief Martin Brody, no, she's not. I think for the what the first half of the movie is, and not taking the precautions, I, I think the there are two main protagonists, or not protagonists, but antagonists to this film. 
you would clearly say the shark is one of them. But up until the the second half of the movie, he's not the primary antagonist. Ultimately, you would say that the mayor is, and every time you watch this movie, you just seem to, uh, at least I do, I seem to get angrier and angrier that he's not taking the advice. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand. Interesting story with that woman, um, and I can't remember, what was the son's name? The character, or? Yes, the character. I don't remember. I, I Whatever his name was. So um, the the woman had, uh, had moved away. She had lived someplace other than there. She came to visit, and she went into a restaurant, and they had on the menu the, if his name was Scott Kittner, the Scott Kittner sandwich. And she's like, what? And so she's like, tells the waitress, what's this? I played the mother in the movie. And so she goes back, and all of a sudden, this guy comes running out. He owns the restaurant. It was the kid from the movie that played her son in it, and he was the restaurant owner. And they had not seen each other since they since the filming. Interesting. That is a great anecdote. All right. So, uh, out of all of those that we've nominated so far, what for you was the best scene? Uh, the Indianapolis. It was mine too. I, I just think there's so much rawness and vulnerability that it slows down the mo- movie enough to engage you on an emotional and psychological level that really um, there is no other spot in this movie that it does so. And I think it's just a wonderful pause. It, it's kind of like in most songs you get that bridge where the music kind of changes for a little bit. You get out of the regular melody and the refrain and you kind of have that that small piece, that's what this seems to be in the course of this movie. I'll agree with that. I mean, it's, it's to me, the most indelible moment of the movie. Okay, I had the final sequence as most indelible, just because I think it's the most iconic, uh, other than the, the line which uh, I, I'll get around to for uh, when we get to best lines here in a second. Um, I, I think the explosion and what happens at the ending because it's so thrilling ends up being iconic but i certainly understand um why you would say that that is the most indelible uh what did you have in your favorite scene the same i mean it's to me it's just that scene that says so much. Sweet. yeah um you know i'm a military historian so i've known about the Indianapolis and other situations for a long time and there's an entire book that was written about the the story of the Indianapolis and it's just it's it's chilling and uh, to hear the story and you know in a first person account um, it just it explains how uh, an event like that can shape a person yeah, I mean it's absolutely haunting and especially the, with the way he did it. So I, to a certain extent, I, I realize that maybe my accent might have been bad, but I hope the audience can kind of look past that in my my attempt at trying to, um, for what it's worth, imitate Robert Shaw and how much we appreciate that scene. Uh, for me, it's the 4th of July um, as far as favorite scene. I just, 
I love what they did with that scene. I I think there are several of them that I could pick out and that are endlessly rewatchable in this movie because I really don't find it horrifying, but I, I just think the way that the suspense works and how much they set up and kind of flip the script on you, and you especially once you've seen the movie before and you know what's going to happen and you can see all the mechanics and the gears behind it and how they're setting things up, I think it just it really works for me. So that looks like a good spot for us to briefly cut to one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's jump right back into best lines. So I already read the sequence from uh, the USS Indianapolis story. I already also read the uh, scene sequence from uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Kintner. And I just, I would like to nominate those two. I don't think I need to revisit both of those uh, explicitly just because of how much I went into those. But do you have any other nominees that you'd like to put up? Farewell and adieu to you, my fair Spanish ladies. I thought about doing that one, but I, I thought I'd have to rewatch the musical tune uh, in order to make sure it's there. And I really thought that it was a good use of character to have him constantly be sh- singing these like shanty tunes. So that, yes. that's a good nominee. Uh, I won't steal one of the biggest ones, but... Uh, Smile, you son of a bitch, is got to be up near the top on this particular movie because of where it happens in the movie and uh, how fitting it is to that final, uh, I guess, moment. Yes. So I- I'll nominate that one. Well, this is not a boat accident, and it wasn't a propeller, and it wasn't any coral reef, and it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. Yeah, that another one from Hooper. Uh, I had a different one before we get to the final big one, but um, what am I going to tell the kids? Tell them I'm going fishing. Here lies the body of Mary Lee, died at the age of 103. She was 15 years she kept her virginity, and a bad record for that, not a bad record for this vicinity. There are some great moments of comedy and levity for this being kind of horror-esque, thriller so I, I, I do want to highlight that, and I, I think that's another one to definitely include. Uh, do you want to nominate the final one? Uh, yeah, we need a bigger boat. You're I going think we're going to need a bigger boat. No, you're going to need a bigger boat. And the oh, it's, I find it we're going to need a bigger boat. And then he goes over to Quentin and says, you're going to need a bigger boat. Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, so the reason of when that takes place in the movie and for all the things that we already said about uh, when that was going to come up, I do find it interesting. So first off, because the script didn't have a lot of the dialogue finished and they had some different things going on, that that was one of the more famous ad libs in American film history. Uh, I don't know how many people know that one. It's not even on the Wikipedia page. So um, there's just an extra little tidbit for everybody. But uh, in addition to it being an ad lib, it was clear that they wanted that to be a big line because in the editing process during the screening, they thought because um, either there were gasps or uh, other audible uh, issues with 
what was going on. They had to actually separate the line itself a little bit from um, the rest of the sequence to give them a, a certain level of pause so that the line could stand on its own. And they amplified the sound of the line to make sure that people heard it because they want, they knew the importance of that line. So I, I do find it interesting that uh, even during the course of producing this film, they realized how important that was to uh, the overall of the movie. So out of these, what is your best line? I, I still, I mean... Uh, we're gonna need a bigger boat. Yeah, I I, I really don't. I, I mean, how many times have you used something that line? I've used it like a uh, hundred times. We're gonna need a bigger boat. We're gonna need I mean, a bigger, you know. We're we're not smarter than everybody else that has been able to produce uh, all of these things. I I think there are plenty of honorable mentions, and I think personally, I'm gonna put that whole. Um, sequence about the indianapolis uh as as my honorable mention because i think it needs to be mentioned um just for how classic and how good that that particular moment is and uh there are some moments of levity that we'll clearly have as the funniest line um i i'll let you even pick which uh, which other ones but i mean this has been recognized as the best line the most uh quintessential um indelible line of the entire movie for 40 some years at this point so let, let's not reinvent the wheel so what do you have as the funniest line then i like the uh here lies the body of mary lee uh shocking that you'd pick that one i guess let's hope mom doesn't listen to this episode again all right you want to move into our stanley rubric uh what did you have down for legacy um, I had this at a 9.5. It's iconic. It has a long, I mean, you can talk about Jaws now. It's a 40-year-old film. It's still, you know, you, you still have people. You, you go to a pool party and you'll have people. Da-dun, da-dun, da-dun. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's it existed. It, it has transcended generations there are kids who know about jaws who have never seen the film but they know the iconic parts of it so i'm going to make this as a multi-front argument okay and i i won't give my score on the front end i'm going to lead this all up to the back end number one this was the box office record holder and completely changed the way that cinema uh, was produced because they wanted all of the proceeds on the front end. So when they talk in modern uh, terms of movie making and the business of movies and all of this as to how it did on its opening weekend and all the records they want to send because they want the money up front, it's because they wanted production um, proceeds like Jaws. When this is the first movie that was... Um, released in like a wide uh, swath. Up until this point, they would do it market by market and let things build. And this was the first one where they just dropped it on the whole country at one time. Uh, this is another one that uh, was one of the first big movies internationally. It was one of the first, or it's the movie that originally created the summer blockbuster. Uh, and for 30 
to almost 40 years, we've been talking about summer movie season. Because up until that point, summer had just been when movies would be dumped by studios when people weren't paying attention because they were outside and they were doing other things. Uh, you want to talk about the fact that the musical score, we've said it I don't know how many times during the course of this program that the two notes alone uh, are so readily associated with this movie and people know exactly what it's about, the concept of the movie and how things are, are, uh, are tied together that it lives in the pop cultural lexicon like almost nothing else does from a musical score and a movie being so intertwined. And if you want to talk about uh, action-adventure movies and high-concept and basically the creation of what is um, both one of the greatest composers in film history as well as one of the great directors in film history, I don't know how in the world this isn't a 10. All right. I'll concede. I, <laughs> okay. I, will, I will agree it's a 10. I try to avoid giving tens unless I absolutely think, and now you've made a good point and you've convinced me. I'll agree it's a ten. I just think this has so many because the, I, I agree with you. Tens are very hard for me, and I've been a little bit more willing than you have. But when I see a ten, I don't want to shy away from what it truly is a ten. I want to be able to set this for me is an absolute 10, and this sets the market on what needs to be a 10 for this category. Impact significance. I will make almost the exact same argument. How much it changed film history in this period where we go um, from blockbusters. I gave it another 10. I, I'm sorry. They're just in the short term. There is nothing like it from a production, from all of the things that went into it, and all of the things that it changed about how people made movies and the business of movies, I, I think it has to be a 10. It's just simply there. The only knock I can maybe give on it is they really didn't recognize it at the time, given the fact that, yes, it was up for Best Picture, but Steven Spielberg is still hot over the fact that he wasn't even nominated for Best Director that year. <laughs> it was his first film. I understand, so. but like... Damien Chazelle was nominated for Whiplash, I think. No, maybe he wasn't. But he was nominated for his second film. I mean... I mean, the only reason that they they brought in Spielberg to do this is because um, the producers happened to see the, the TV film, made for TV, um, that a friend of ours refers to on a continuous basis, Duel, with Dennis Weaver. That was uh, the first full-length film that that uh, um, that Spielberg had done, and the reason was is they'd watched it and they thought, you know, if you were to change a driverless truck trying to kill somebody to shark, maybe this guy could do the job, and so that's how they decided to hire him. The first guy they brought in came in and he started talking about what he was going to do as far as opening scenes. And then he says, um, and then the ship, the boat comes and then the, the whale comes up and, and they go, whale? What are you talking about a whale? If you can't understand the difference between a shark and a whale, you're an idiot. Get out of here. And they, they ended the meeting right there. 
and then brought him in. Well, two of the other factors that I want to lead into this. Uh, this movie led to something being known as, uh, I think it was cinema paresis, that there is an associated condition of mental disorder that you can have from uh, a film because a woman uh, who was like 17 or 18 at the time uh, actually had uh, such severe, uh, I guess, night terrors or, or uh, nightmares of, of a sort that she cannot, or could not for multiple weeks on end could not wake up without screaming sharks and there there are so many other feel lines through this i mean this was horrifying it was thrilling it was a huge box office draw i really don't think that one of the biggest other legacy movies of the decade uh star wars would have been able to have been made had it not been for this movie and how it was produced because star wars came out in may of 77 another one that you could put in the line of uh black summer blockbuster types and there are so many other pieces that this opened up a huge door toward that i i really don't know if we can quantify how quickly and how impactful it was in its essence well it launched john williams i think that has a little bit more to do with legacy but given the amount of things that he did within the five-year period after this i would have to grant you that as well so all right uh what did you have down though for impact significance this film was all the rage. Everybody talked about it. I mean, they, the, the number of swimmers on the beaches in New Jersey and in New England and in Florida all dropped precipitously right after this film came out. So it had a huge impact. The only thing I can say is, and I'm and I having lived through this, but I was a kid, so it's a little harder for me to say what the overall impact was. I, I would have to say it's pretty close to a ten. I, I'd go nine point five, only because um, I don't think everybody saw the film. There was a, you know, I can honestly say, for example, your grandparents who would have been, you know, in their late thirties at the time. Um, did not see this film. We're early thirties. Yeah, you you have to understand that I think there's a layer of people when they're in their um, early years of having kids before their kids are like ten and older that probably have a complete gap in movies because they just don't see everything. And I, I think there's there's a significant portion of the population that has like a ten year movie gap. Any of the the parents out there. So I, I don't blame them for that. I, I, I almost gloss over that. One thing I did forget to mention, and I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, dwindling beaches, but another point in the legacy column, one of the biggest cultural impact moments that we've had for an entire cable channel for years has been fucking Shark Week, which <laughs> only happens because of this movie. Which, which our current president was in. That's Sharknado. Sharknado. Yes. So, so yes, your point. Sure, you know. Yet again, our fascination with sharks almost yeah. all comes out of this movie. Anyway, let's move on to novelty. I had a 9.5. I, I refrain from giving straight 10s on this, but there are so many um, pieces to this that are just original that I have a hard time not giving it at least a 9.5. I really had a, a devolving nature, but... There are things that they borrow from. 
that aren't necessarily original. They used a large animatronic, which was not necessarily original. Uh, they did film at sea. That was original and very concept. This is the first film that tried to film out at sea. So that that is, I guess, a, a novel piece of the movie-making process and how they did this movie. Uh, I won't say that um, trying to imitate and kind of do some adventure sequencing and the, the score and some of the rest of it to make it seem like kind of a piratey movie um, was necessarily novel, but for the public's fatu- infatuation with sharks and all of the other um, layers of this when they released the movie, uh, how much of an impact it made, I kind of ha- can't ignore that when grading out to novelty, so I gave it a 9.5. What say you? I had a nine because I, even though there were so many, you know, novel elements, this is basically a, whether you call it a, or not, it's a slasher movie. I mean, there's a villain. Um, I, I, I don't think that the shark is just uh, along the line of so many of the different horror movies that were available, whether it be Frankenstein, um, uh, the mummy, um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, they, they are all, uh, there's a certain element. They took that element and just put it in the sea and made the shark. So to that, I have to give it a point less. So I give it a nine. I'm going to come down to your nine, and uh, we'll just agree on that one. I I don't have too many disagreements with your point there, and I, I I just don't know if I can completely go up to the 10 because of how we've set the 10 before uh, as to what you have to be for a novelty of a concept. All right, classicness. Uh, I had an 8.5. I don't think that this movie is particularly um, aged poorly. Again, I think this could be relatively released now and still be okay. But there are a couple of things um, that, that kind of work against it one i really don't know if you could uh make the movie in the way that they did and still get it released we've already mentioned that on the show the amount of things that they had to basically give leeway for this to even come about is not something that's there but also there are almost no women in this movie um when they are they're kind of substitutes or fill in to move the sequence along not like they're important characters um, there's no diversity at all. How do you know the shark wasn't a woman? That's fair. I, I just, there, there are some points here to knock it down. So I went with an 8.5. I just, I, I can't give it too much more than that based on what we've had. I will say that some of the horror elements given how, um, culture and there, there are some, um, things with the special effects because you would you do see when the shark comes out of the water and is on the boat there are certain shots where you're like oh my god that is just so cheesy the animatronic that like you can tell and yes. it's, it's bad but uh, there are just some little hit points that reduce it down that far to me and i still think an 8.5 is extremely high so yeah um um I had an eight for that very reason. There were several scenes with the shark that you could go, oh, my God, is that looks so bad. It's so rubbery. You know, and 
it's been or the version we watched was digitalized and restored. Yeah. So the remastery um, was so much clearer than was when the footage was originally um, in theaters. So so you can see everything. So to that extent, yes, that's exactly why I went with an eight on this for that very reason that it just the you know the special effects. Anytime you're going to do special effects at that time compared to what we have now, it just pales. Oh, certainly, and I think you see that in a lot of the earlier Spielberg movies that he just was playing in um, unusual territory that nobody had really done before to that point, uh, particularly with this type of movie that y- you can't, unfortunately you grade it down for the, the essence of the movie, but you understand and can kind of give it its due a little bit. If you maybe give it context and circumstance. I mean, the other things as far as classicness and the emotional resonance, and it's going to affect my rewatchability score than my, cla- my classicness score but there is an element to this movie where once you've seen it the one time or you know the ending, it kind of takes a little bit of the air out of the balloon of the, the thrill of the movie. You do know, uh, especially if you do know the ending, you still don't know uh, some of the sequencing and you do have to have a little bit of distance in order for the film to work. I don't think you can watch this multiple times and still get the same thrill out of it that you would if you watch it maybe once a year, um, every six months, something like that. So, uh, but that that grades it or averages out to 8.25 between the two of us. So I'll just, since I mentioned it already, my rewatchability score was a 6.5. This is, again, I think our scale is probably the hardest on rewatchability more than anything else, uh, given what types of movies we end up rewatching a lot, uh, or the ones that we go to as our, um, comfort movies. So this is not a comfort movie for me. This is, I wouldn't say that this is like a high concept that I really need to think when we graded out bridge on the river quiet a couple of weeks ago, you said this, or that was a movie that you needed to think. I don't think there's a lot of thought, um, that needs to go into experiencing this movie. Most of it's kind of an adventure quality, but that, and so I, I guess I graded a little bit higher because you don't need to think about it as much. But there are so many other pieces that go into this that it's not one that's uh, always going to make me laugh, although it does have some nice comedic moments. It's not one that I'm gravitating towards putting on on a random Friday night because I love the movie or something. And it's not one that um, has been one of my classics or go-to, although I'd be more open to having it because I I do enjoy the film. So I guess a good median point was somewhere between a 7 and a 6.5, and I, I felt comfortable going with a 6.5. Well, I'm only going to go – I'm going to go not quite even as high as you. I'm going 5.5. I always start with a 5 and then go up or down based on that. And so much of this film is wrapped up in the suspense of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen that – it, you know, once you know the ending, it's kind of like, eh, okay. Um, you can watch it and enjoy it for what it is, which is some of the acting, some of the uh, screen uh, shots, the directing, um, some of the dialogue. But otherwise, it's, it's you know, you know the ending. So, okay. 
Um, so, you know, I consider a film that something that I would watch again once in a while to be at the five mark. And then I go up based upon how often I would watch it. And I think I've watched this film about five times over the course of 40 years. That puts it at about uh, every um, eight years. That's about right. So I don't consider that much more than a five. So, but I would give it a little more. So five point five. All right. So, just to recap all of that, that was a ten for legacy, a nine point seven five for impact significance, nine for novelty, eight point two five for classicness, a six for rewatchability. I found this actually to be interesting for as celebrated and popular as this movie was. It only has a ninety percent audience score. Uh, so that only gives it a nine. Uh, so ultimately, it graded out to a straight 52 and uh, ties with Silence of the Lambs for number six currently. Okay. I'm always amazed that no matter, you know, when we're going through this and I start giving out high numbers and then low numbers at times, you know, am I going to end up with this film being graded at a place where I'm not sure it should be? And then when we come up with a number and you say where it's near, I always go, that's about right. Well, that's why we have multiples uh, of us. I mean, it's not just one of our grades, but um, and you've factored over this. We've been kind of talking about this and we're going to uh, do a recap episode when we hit number 50 or get done with number 50 and uh, just looking back on our season one. But uh, for a list that includes 39 movies, we have two ties already. Um, I think it might be worth trying to revisit to break the ties at some point, but it's actually our last two movies have both been ties. So I find it interesting kind of where we're coming out, and we may need to um, figure out how to, like, figure uh, grade separation to um, uh, get some, um, let's say, more clarity on the list itself. But I think that'll be something to play with possibly for season two. I'm certainly not opposed to revisiting um, any of the ones that we currently have tied on the list or maybe getting a new perspective added in. Sure. That might be a good one to find somebody who um, is a fan or somebody who's listening who would be interested in being a guest. Sounds like a plan. Do you have any remaining questions? Um... I remember seeing Jaws 2 barely. I've seen it once. So I, I assume that many of the questions that were left unresolved uh, ultimately were resolved. But um, but one of them I would like to do. The shark gets blown up. Considering that so much of uh, different parts were still in the shark days later that they had cut open, that they had captured on the dock that Hooper opened. Um, how much of uh, Quint was still in the shark? That's an interesting thought. I would guess a significant amount. He, he may have been oatmeal-like, but probably quite a bit. Uh, my, my first one was a, an intended, apparently, open question of the movie. So when they rewrote the script from... Uh, or in its many different versions, because I think this passed through, like, by my count, somewhere between, like, six and nine people 
that touched a version of the script, including uh, the original author of the book wrote like three different versions around uh, some type of writer strike when they originally um, bought the rights to the the book. But uh, apparently, the last guy to come in. Cameo, by the way. Yeah, I know. Uh, One of the last guys to touch it i think he was the primary um writer who ended up doing the onset writing at the end um wrote in that in order to kind of soften or remake brody's character that he was intentionally afraid of the water i i guess but the problem is is they never really explain why and for me that's one of the biggest open-ended questions of the movie they kind of half resolve it in the last moment of the movie you know i was always so afraid of the water i wonder why and you get that last moment to kind of like give a certain level of levity at the end but it's never really answered exactly why he's afraid of the water unless i miss something it never is explained i mean and that happens i i I know for a long time i was afraid of the water but I know why I was afraid of the water. It, it came out much later on in my life as to an explanation. My mother was afraid of the water, and she was afraid of the water because uh, when she was an infant, um, uh, the buckboard that they were riding um, uh, took off and with my mom still in the buckboard and... Uh, uh, ran through the farm and ended up down by the creek and almost went into the creek. The horses stopped at the bank. And my grandmother was all afraid that that uh, my mother was going to drown in the creek. <laughs> and so to the for the moment that, or every moment I've ever known or I knew my grandmother, she was absolutely terrified of the water. And, uh, I mean, you couldn't even go near the water without her just like, having a, a, a panic attack, and that's why. So it passes generationally. So who knows? And I think for most people that are afraid of the water, there is some type of like personal dread or connection to why they do so. So I, I find it a little odd that they, although I understand why they made the choice and ultimately uh, why it's left as an open-ended question, but it is something that maybe I, I would prefer to have had a more definitive answer on so just me um i had one other question but i'm gonna skip it so do you have anything else you'd like to address no no um this uh i just want to encourage everybody to go out and vote and on that note uh there are not many opportunities to more or less overthrow your government peacefully Um, that have ever existed in the uh, structure of mankind, this is your opportunity to do so. For all of those people that constantly complain about everybody that's in um, elected office or how bad politicians are or how much they hate politics, I know that you have this cynical view, but decisions will be made with or without you. You should be having your input heard if you uh, really want to continue to complain. Um, If you're not exercising your vote, I no longer want to hear your complaints. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, I guess we will be discussing uh, All the President's Men, uh, currently available on HBO Max, uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. So that, I guess, will tie in with the... Jason Robarts. Correct. Uh, That will tie in with the election feed, so stick around on this feed for that one. 
please email the show if you'd like to get a hold of us. We did have a, a fan or a listener uh, response this week, which we really appreciate. Um, somebody who was advocating for a very little-known film. So if uh, that particular listener is out there, we did get it, and we do appreciate uh, your feedback. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.